The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. <clears throat> I'm spending a couple of months in Tuscany, and I have to say, <laughs> Tuscany is really wonderful. And oh my God, the food. <laughs> I'm going to come back looking like uh, uh, this Stay Puff Marshmallow Man if I don't stop eating this pasta. It's it's been great though. It's lovely. I love I love to be in Italy. So yeah, the Italians are so friendly. They're so nice and they're so forgiving when you can't speak their language. So I was really relating to what the woman was saying earlier about um, you know. Talking to someone whose English wasn't that that good, I was thinking, I'm that person in Italy. I I know about four words of Italian, and that's about it. So they've been very gentle with me. Anyway, so David, I want to thank you for that beautiful um, that beautiful inspiring um, talk and that wonderful meditation that you led. And obviously, it it prompted some good discussions in the breakout rooms. So, so equanimity. I had a. Some of you know that I I spent some time in robes, and I had a monastic teacher who who uh, he was talking about suffering, but you could almost equate this with equanimity. And he had this little phrase that he used to say to his monks, no preferences, no problems. <laughs> no preferences, no problems. So, uh, you know, you can really communicate a deep, deep uh, insight or wisdom with few words when, when you get the right words. And that, those were the right words. So... Uh, no preferences, no problems, not taking ownership. I heard David say that, or Fiona say that. Um, going for freedom, you know, just really, yeah. And being being with the hard lessons in life. Um, uh, trying to make ourselves be equanimous isn't always <clears throat> so darn easy. So... Uh, there is the absolute and the relative, as David was saying, and um, it's really important, I think, and useful for us to, to uh, you know, uh, meet ourselves, um, to meet ourselves in the experience that we're actually having, to have a kind of radical, transparent honesty about what's going on and and not try to superimpose um, uh, ideas and lofty goals that don't map to our experience, and then we really frustrate ourselves. So um, when that happens, and it's very natural, and ask me how I know that that, that happens, uh, you know, Equanimity, it's a real opportunity to practice equanimity, to practice being with what is. It doesn't make any difference. Give up all hope, give up 
all fear, give up, just be what it, you said it just so beautifully, David. So thank you. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit um, about getting in touch with a part of ourselves that we'll, I'll try to weave equanimity into it, but I want to talk about um, learning to connect with the, with the, the truth and the possibility that we have within us, you know, basic essential goodness, and that that goodness is really an anchor for all of us in our practice. That goodness, that essential goodness is the groundless ground that is there for all of us at all time. And, um, you know, for some people, when we talk about an anchor, uh, we we have different ideas about what an anchor might be in a practice situation or a meditative situation. But for me, the anchor, when all else fails, I, I look to see if I can still connect to that quality that yearns to wake up, to be free, and that I associate with goodness. And that quality is always there. So that's kind of the framework that I want to, um, you know, try to weave some kind of a story in here. So as we age, you know, we all begin to experience uh, really an array of changes, physical and mental changes, transitions that run the entire gamut uh, from loss and heartbreak and grief and sadness or disappointment in other people or disappointment in ourselves and our life conditions and on and on and on. That's one side to what might be characterized as this kind of direct knowing of an indescribable sense of stirring within us, uh, a happiness, a, a profound sense of peace and uh, contentment that's steady and reassuring and safe. And it's a refuge from the distractions and the challenges and the ups and downs that we all experience in our day-to-day lives. And going from, you know, one extreme to the other and everything in between is completely natural and part of what it's like to be a human being, or certainly that's the way I experience it. So in the ebb and flow of our lives, it's important that we learn how to keep returning and staying anchored to this quality that I was referring to as this deep desire, this deep stirring in ourselves, this the deepest core values and intentions that we have, um, just to to realize that that can be an anchor and a refuge for us. And, and we don't have to make that happen. It's there. All we have to do is pause and notice it and trust that it's there. So um, doing this is part of the way that we learn to recognize what it's like really to experience equanimity because one moment we're feeling this way, it's dark and everything is wrong and why is this happening to me? And 
And then the next time we notice what our experience is, we're feeling quite happy and contented and so on and so forth. So whether it's one way or the other, equanimity holds both of those, doesn't deny the reality of of our experience at all, but it's in relationship to it in a very um, equanimous way. So I was talking to a young a young student who wants to come to Stanford, and he, he was he, he was so sweet and so sincere about you know his interest in spirituality and Buddhism and so on and so forth. And he he was saying he was on a school trip and a month ago, and he was in Italy, and he read this story about Saint Francis being with one of his disciples, and they were out doing something and it was cold and snowing and so on and so forth. And, and they went to a monastery to try to take shelter. And um, uh, they would, weren't let in or something. I, I don't really have the story straight in my head, but so they ended up, shivering in the cold, sitting outside the monastery in the cold. And the disciple was completely taken by the fact that St. Francis didn't seem to be bothered by it. And the moral of the story is that he said, in the snow or in the monastery, even though conditions aren't comfortable here, we can be steady in our mind and in our heart. So I think the moral of that story was he was pointing to this quality of equanimity. So even though our lives, our individual lives and our collective lives are full of experiences that trigger and challenge us and throw us off balance, and we find ourselves shivering in the snow probably a whole lot more than we would like to admit. And even the profoundly beautiful experience of compassion, literally it puts us in direct face-to-face contact with the reality of suffering in us or in others. So compassion is a beautiful quality, but it requires courage and strength. It's a common myth about compassion is that it's a soft skill, it's weak, it means being nice. And so it's quite the opposite. It's fierce and it requires strength and courage to, to meet suffering and, 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 you know, not, not deny it or run away from it or resist it. So even in the realm of compassion, it's important that we learn the skill of returning to and staying anchored in our heart and in this greater purpose that stirs in us and calls us all to this community or sangha, and stirs in us to take refuge in our practice or in the goodness in our intent, or even the goodness in our our intention to practice. And for some of us, it might mean, you know, taking refuge in the triple gem of the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. And for others, they have other wisdom traditions or spiritual traditions that they follow. Um, And I would add that uh, David and Fiona, because uh, I've heard Fiona and myself, I we've all pointed out in earlier 
this group has been going on for quite a while, but we've all pointed out um, the importance of staying anchored in our own essential goodness and our ability to meet ourselves and others with a, this quality of care, this quality of kindness with generosity and with equanimity. Equanimity is what makes that possible. So it also allows us to recognize our shared human desire to be happy and to be free from suffering. Everybody, even if they think they're not interested in being happy, I once had a student say, would you stop saying everyone wants to be happy? I don't want to be happy. I said, okay, I get it. I hear it. Do you want to, do you want to suffer? And she said, well, of course I don't want to suffer. I said, that's what I mean by being happy. We can agree that we don't want to suffer. So, <clears throat> so allowing this inherent goodness to be our anchor and, and to recognize that it is already and has always been with us. We really don't have to search any further than just pausing to notice what an undefended heart feels like, what our undefended heart feels like. This inherent goodness really is a guide, a North Star that can sustain and fortify us uh, through all the vicissitudes of our own aging process, especially when we bump into our edges and all the things that we protest about and resist in the flow of our day-to-day -day lives. So, you know, <laughs> I was part of a men's group for a number of years, and we used to joke that it, we would get together and, and, you know, the first part of our men's group was an organ recital where we would all <laughs> talk about our aches and pains and all other things that were going on with us. So just, this is just part of, of what it's like to be a human being and a human being who truly aspires, truly aspires for freedom and to wake up. Both of those things can happen and, and are real. So trusting in this essential goodness is something that can help us stay on track and help us maintain balance. And it can be intentional and deliberate. We can make a practice out of it, a way for us to see and acknowledge the other half of life, which is this goodness. We don't have to just be thinking it's, you know, our organ recital. So what do I mean by this? Well, we know that suffering is part of life. The Buddha taught that. Suffering is part of life and nobody denies it. And it's really, there's none of us here that would claim that our lives has been free from suffering. I'm sure if I took a poll, I don't think anyone would make that claim. <clears throat> but to embody our full humanity, it's equally important for us to see this natural abiding goodness, the kindness and the compassion that's also present around us. And to embody and experience that in a very real way, directly, in our day-to-day -day life. 
So there's a psychologist, a professor of ethical leadership um, at New York University, named uh, a fellow named Jonathan Haidt. And um, not to get academic here, but this this man's research suggests that when we deliberately pay attention to qualities like kindness and compassion and goodness in others, it literally promotes those same qualities in ourselves. It's what we all practice in our in our Buddhist practice here. And uh, Hate's research shows that when we deliberately pay attention to and recognize uh, positive traits in other people, it breaks down the barriers between us and it leads to more acts of kindness and compassion. And those acts ripple out into the world. We've all heard the expression, you know, changing the world one person at a time. So as we train our minds, we literally change our brains. This is a fact. So the term that uh, Jonathan Hay uses for this is moral elevation. Some of you probably have heard this term. Um, and he uses this term because when we recognize that these wholesome qualities, you know, are present in others, it figuratively elevates us and creates the causes and conditions for us to live and act from the best versions of ourselves. Isn't that nice? We see other people doing things and then we get inspired and 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 it just it ripples, we change one person at a time. So why is this important for us? As I mentioned earlier, this is the other half of the human experience. Yes, there's suffering, but at the same time, care and kindness and joy and goodness coexist as part of how we experience our humanity, our own humanity. And unfortunately, the goodness part doesn't get broadcast to us nearly as much as the bad news does. Researchers have coined the phase, phrase, excuse me, negativity bias. Um, there's a psychologist up in, in, or a neuroscientist, I should say, a ne neuropsychologist, I guess he is, up in Marin County, a fellow named Rick Hansen. And he aptly describes our brains being like Teflon for positive thoughts, but like Velcro for negative thoughts. Does that, does that ring true for any of us here? Let me see. So I don't know if it rings true for you, but it certainly rings true in my experience. And this is partly why we're having you engage in very deliberate breakout sessions together to consciously give attention to the qualities of kindness and care and joy and goodness that are part and parcel of each one of us. So I'm using the term fundamental goodness to sum up the best parts of our humanity. You can use whatever word or term works for you to describe these traits. These are traits that just become part of the way that we are. And to be clear, it's a practice to consciously look for this goodness, to recognize it, both in ourselves, and sometimes that's the hardest place for us to see it, 
but also we look for it in others. And this intentional practice helps us to maintain balance and clarity, and it inspires us as we do the hard, really sometimes tremendously difficult work of meeting and addressing all the stresses and suffering, which are also part of our everyday lived experience. So before I send you into a breakout room to process with each other, I'm just going to invite you right now to just take a moment to pause. You might even close your eyes for a moment and take a breath and think about or reflect on this notion of basic essential goodness. And if or how it does or doesn't show up for you in your own life. You see? So one of the ways that I shared with you, for me, when I get into a dark place or I lose my, my North Star, so to speak, I check in to see if that's stirring in my heart if I can find it someplace. And when everything else is gone, that's always dependable for me. So just take a moment. What is it for you? How does, how does it show up for you? How might you recognize this? It's not something that you have to work at. It's only something that you need to begin to notice. It's an essential, inherent quality like compassion. Okay. So, David, would you get the breakout rooms ready? And it was, you know, and having us look at this innate goodness uh, I I have this app on my phone, an Insight Timer, and people share in these groups. And there's this one man. I was just thinking everyone has wisdom. You know, it's not just the big names. It's not just the Roshis and the Maharshis and the uh, the Dharma teachers. So someone, a steward in England, shared this the other day. Now I think I understand. It's been there all the time. It works from the inside out. I've searched for it and never been sure I've found it. Now I say to myself, don't feel you need to go looking for it. You can't force it. Let it come out. It grows in you. You start to feel it cropping up almost unexpectedly in whatever you're doing. It happens more and more. It feels calm and peaceful. It is pure love, and it shines through whenever you allow it. Mm. Anonymous Stewart in the UK. Mm-hmm. So being curious, 
and just letting your essential nature arise and be expressed. Mm -hmm.